we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. My name is Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in County Cork in Ireland, we investigate stories of the strange, uh, always attempting to remain critical, but hopefully never cynical. Hopefully you'll find it to be the case anyway. Um, so you're very welcome to the Cabin. This is our October, late October episode, uh, which means it's our Halloween episode. Last year, this time last year, we were talking about Borley Rectory. That was our super mega, mega full-length episode on Borley Rectory. This time, we're talking about T.C. Lethbridge, because I wanted to bring a kind of an archaeological take into this year's October episode, because not only is this going to be our Halloween episode, it is also our entry for what's called Spooky October, that is being run by the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and the Archaeo Gaming Collective. Uh, I'm a big fan of that show, been listening to it for years. I've learned very, very much from them. Um, if nothing else, I've learned that uh, a whole lot of tropes to do with uh, ghosts and um, kind of odd science have come from strange ideas about the past and strange ideas about archaeology in particular and they're just really incredible at getting that idea out there and I've, I've picked up so much from them over the years so I'm very chuffed to be able to add a little something to uh, that particular activity so if you look up hashtag spooky arctober that's a-r-c-h-t-o-b-e-r um, you'll see all the different people contributing stuff connections between weirdness spookiness and archaeology so that's why I thought we'd better talk about uh, T.C. Lethbridge um, and I have just the right person on this episode to talk about that man. Now, before I get to that, just a quick uh, shout out and thanks to a friend of the show and friend of mine. That is Matt over in Toronto has sent me a lovely book this week. It is called Cultish, the Language of Fanaticism. This is by Amanda Montel. And it is all about uh, the language that is used by cults and how the same kind of language is used, wouldn't you know, in advertising and sort of like wellness people on Instagram and uh, like pyramid scheme stuff. And uh, Matt writes to Kean, hoping this contributes to your wonderful intellectual pursuits from which the many continue to benefit. Very, very kind words there, Matt. So that's awesome. Always love receiving books. And uh, I'm looking forward to checking that one out. So huge, huge thanks to Matt. And uh, uh, don't forget, folks, you can always get in touch over on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And you can support the show, as always, with a one-off, no-strings-attached, uh, delicious donation of coffee over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wide Atlantic. Uh, you can do other things, too. Share episodes with friends. That's always really helpful. And of course, leaving reviews wherever it is that you do listen to your podcasts are always appreciated as well. Though, if you do that, uh, just drop me a line saying so and I'll call, I'll read it out because um, if, if it's a nice one, that is, uh, because I don't always see them. I don't get automatic. Uh, I don't get an automatic email or anything telling me that somebody has dropped one. And if it's not on the particular one that I use, I might not see it. So that's just just let me know. That's always cool. My beer for this episode is Indian Summer Pale Ale. That is from Cotton Ball Brewing right in the north side of County Cork, Mayfield, I believe, in County Cork, in Cork City, in fact. So it's lovely and um, sort of uh, lighter kind of an ale and um, perfect kind of, well, it's called Indian Summer, which, you know, implies sort of um, a late summer, early autumn sort of a vibe. But, uh, you know, 
on a, on a bright sunny autumn day when the leaves are turning it is just the right thing so my guest for this episode is lisa grimm from the beer ladies podcast she is uh, many things uh, an expert on the history and uh, science of beer and also has a huge interest in the paranormal and a very extensive library and i really should have had her on a long time ago to talk about this stuff but you know sometimes you have to wait for the right topic and boy is this the right topic and i learned so much talking to lisa all about and um, tc lethbridge i'm very very pleased with this one folks so i hope you enjoy our halloween episode and let's get right into it Right, cool. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Really glad to be here. Would you like to say something about your show first so that, uh, yeah, a little, little promotion? Oh, sure. Thank you very much. So I am one of the co-hosts of the Beer Ladies podcast, which is primarily based in Ireland, although obviously accent-wise, you can tell we come from all over the place. So, uh, But we, we do mostly record in Ireland. We tend to focus on Irish beers, but we want to have a global remit as well. So we try to interview not just women in beer from all over, but definitely interesting people in beer from all over and, and have a bit of a, of a look into history, archaeology, folklore, fake lore, all of that good stuff when it comes to beer. And, and it's pretty, I, I really appreciate the historical stuff on the show myself. Um, and some, some of you folks have a background in training in archaeology and history, which I think is, is wonderful. And it's just fascinating how you, ch you choose any product like beer and, and like go back through history and you'll see how it interacts with everything and, and lots of really interesting things come into it that way as well. And you also have a background in spooky paranormal stuff as well. Yes, in, indeed. I've been collecting uh, mostly sort of ghost-related books uh, for probably 30-odd years now, but uh, it, it's something I get very excited about. I like to collect the, the stranger ones out there, but I, I always do kind of like say like to get those that have a bit of a historical hook to them or a bit of a regional uh, take on them. So I try to get them anywhere I've ever lived. I have a whole uh, stack of books, but uh, I do also go into sometimes the, the sort of UFO or cryptozoology stuff, but, but ghosts tend to be my... Uh, my primary hook and uh that's my uh my, my i would say small collection but in fact it's a very large collection so uh yeah when people who run used bookstores see me coming they they start to rub their hands together and get very excited i've seen a few bits and pieces from your collection and it, it looks yeah. enviable and uh, so you um i think we i mentioned one day something about uh, we're going to talk about a fellow by the name of tc lethbridge who is Indeed. famous or infamous in in, in british archaeology <laughs> And uh, I think I was taught there, there's a the, the unexplained magazine. There's a there's that yeah. um, on Twitter. They're very good. At, it, it was an old British part work magazine, I think. Or pardon, yeah, I think so. Maybe that's not the right word. I have some collections of them from later that yeah. were published in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but the 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 Twitter handle who kind of chronicles that stuff does a really tremendous job uh, of of reading out some of their interesting material. And um, they were talking about TC Lethbridge. And I think you mentioned that you'd heard about him, you'd learned about him in, in university. And I I had I had always thought he was fairly obscure. I had no idea. I know about him because of Tom uh, Colin Wilson books that I read as a kid. Yes. And I, I bet we'll maybe we can say something about Colin Wilson's relationship to Lethbridge and how he came into the be interested in him. Um, but he was basically he fits into what we're talking about in this episode, which is overlaps between archaeology. Um, British and Irish eccentric archaeologists people <laughs> and um, kind of unusual ideas about the past. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he he is very much firmly in that sort of eccentric camp. And, and, and as I think we'll get into, there's a very distinct almost break that he has kind of midlife between where he's sort of a, I don't want to say typical archaeologist because he's still not quite typical for the time, but he goes from doing sort of what we might call kind of late imperial archaeology things in, in big air quotes to then just shifting into this straight up paranormal stuff. And, and I think a lot of it is because he... Uh, he kind of gets annoyed that people in the field don't like his ideas anymore. So he just kind of goes completely, I don't want to say completely off the rails because there is still an internal logic to it, but it's a, it's a very distinct shift. And, and a lot of it does happen because people don't like his, uh, his, his sort of archeological take on things. But I, I like you say, I, I did first hear of him even before that. I, I fell down the rabbit hole as I think many people do of the, uh, Janet and Colin Board, Mysterious Britain books and, and those kind of things. I, I would say probably in my teens, I'd always collected books about archaeology before that, but these are certainly more in your earth mysteries kind of uh, kind of a thing. And they first mentioned T.C. Lethbridge and the Gog Magog Hills. And, and again, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that, but all of the things he was doing kind of around dowsing and um, again, sort of tapping into ley lines, this kind of a thing that no, no actual archaeologists would, would sort of admit to now, but it's all kind of wrapped up in, in what we might call kind of a more innocent earth mysteries thing. So as a, as a young postgraduate, um, I, I did my master's in archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology in London. Um, I was, I was just sort of, you know, happened to bring my book up ahead in my bag and it's like, oh, this T.C. Lethbridge guy. And someone was like, oh, I knew him as an undergraduate. He was the biggest crank and you just sort of went off. And I was like, Oh, had had no idea. I had kind of um, you know poked an anthill, if you like. But uh, again, this was person, sort of an sorry, older. This person had known answer. him personally. Had had known him at least in passing. I think this person had been an undergraduate when T.C. Lethbridge was still uh, working. Might be a little bit of a of a strong word for it, but was still associated with Cambridge as part of the archaeology. Again, faculty is not quite right for reasons we'll we'll get into but was very much in the kind of milieu there and part of the, the sort of professional organization there. But he had clearly sort of passed or sort of crossed paths with him as it were when this kind of falling out was, was happening and, and people already kind of associated him with kind of being a, the, the crazy person who didn't really belong in the field anymore. So it's, uh, it was very interesting. And it, it, was a, it was a big lesson learned for me that you don't just sort of come in and be enthusiastic about anything because someone will tell you you're wrong. So, so uh, especially as you're coming in as an American to, you know, I just moved to Britain and I was very excited about everything and, you know, had elderly British men tell me what a terrible person I was and how I had no original thinking, et cetera. But it was a good, good lesson to learn. There you go. It's funny because there are some people, even in, in the sort of history of archaeology, who have, who can kind of play both sides a little bit more, like someone like, like Margaret Murray, who Lethbridge was a big fan of. Her, her archaeology, people are still pretty okay with, not, not everything, but, you, you know, you can sort of put it in its time and, and the, the work she did into the things she did about kind of the witch cult and uh, how there's still this sort of ongoing pagan tradition. You know, everyone who's a folklore scholar is like, no, no, honey, no, that was not, that was not a thing. And so, but, but there's still a lot of people who believe it and it's seen as received wisdom by people who are not, you know, in the field because it is so, you know, such a, a concept that kind of, you know, took on a life of its own. Lethbridge's um, kind of anti-establishment uh, pose seems much more deliberate. Like Margaret yes. Murray, I don't, I don't get the feeling she was trying to deliberately troll academia or set herself up as this consummate outsider. Whereas Lethbridge uses that language very deliberately. Yeah, he he is very he, he's very much uh, again kind of kind of poking the anthill. I feel like he is he's quite. Um, 
you know, he, especially in his later books, he's angry and he's going to tell you about it. There's a lot of ranting in his books, which you'd never see even in a kind of, let's say popular academic book now or popular science book, because the editor would have been like, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing this. But it's very much kind of the style of those is, you know, there'll be a, he'll have a sort of point of view and then explain why everyone else was terrible about it and uh, and then go off and sort of land back where he where he started because especially later in life he he did stop uh, as they said he, he stopped sort of looking at other people's research which is interesting but also you're like oh okay well that explains a lot but he started to feel uh, again it, what we have in a kind of all of what, what he left in terms of letters and uh, manuscripts that uh, other people's work might influence him the wrong way. So <laughs> it's like, well, but that's how science works. You want to read other people's work and see, you know, other points of view. But he got to a point where he had, he decided he was right and he was going to just sort of carry on with that. But, but it's interesting that he does set himself up as being so anti-establishment because, you know, certainly his, his younger life is purely of the establishment. And, you know, he would not have gotten, you know, had any kind of platform at all, if you like, had he not been... Uh, really gifted a lot of these positions that, uh, you know, he, he did not obtain by merit. Let's, let's put it that way. He was uh, a rich man in the right place at the right time. So in many ways, he does fit into this kind of theme that shows up on this show of these kind of classic English eccentric types from yeah. the kind of turn of the century. And, and there's all this, uh, like, like Gerald Gardner is one of these guys. He had a very British empire background. Yes. And Margaret Murray, to some degree, I, I have a lot of time obviously for her, as you say, a lot of her earlier um, archaeological work is still respected, and her work was with um, she she had, was kind of like an early feminist as well, and just a very Absolutely. interesting person in many ways. Um, but also came about during that same time, and yeah, well, and, and exactly, and she was born in India as well, so had kind of that that if you like imperial upbringing, so a very mm -hmm. different thing. And and again, as you say, she had strings to her bow, like, you know, early feminist, all, all of these things that I think that there's a little more to look at and 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 take apart. Whereas it's it's a funny thing with with TC or, or Tom Lethbridge as the the people who write about him now, you know, and again, sort of starting from a Colin Wilson to, to sort of going on to today, they have this very familiar tone with him as if they'd known him. And there's a lot of uh, it's one of the tricky things when you're reading about him now, because it's very um, it's almost more sort of hagiography than any kind of objective uh, writing about him. And you have to really look at all the things written about him from from you have to kind of take a step back and be like okay they're bought in we understand this and there is a lot of good work in there in terms of having gone and read the letters and and having done the research if you like but then uh instead of sort of filtering it through kind of the context of the time and, and the other people around it it's really sort of and how does this reinforce the viewpoint he had and you're like oh that's that's an interesting way to do that well, <laughs> so again you try not to be cynical like you say but it, it's easy to sort of slip into that Sure. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about his his more respectable first half of his career. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting thing, and I'm I'm just grabbing my notes here to make sure I got the timelines right. But he's he's born in 1901 to a very wealthy family in Somerset. I think they like to say he had six servants and a housemaid. So I, I can just sort of oh. hear community in the background. Six seasons in a movie, but uh, <laughs> you know, from a wealthy family. Although it's it's interesting too that you know he's from a wealthy family, but this wealth only goes back maybe sort of two generations. So they're not quite nouveau riche, but it's it's not, uh, you know, they're not sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, generations and generations of gentry. This is sort of kind of money that someone made somewhere along the way, you know, kind of in, uh, in the Industrial Revolution and, and post that, but grows up very, very comfortably, goes to Wellington College, goes to Cambridge, and it's an interesting thing, he goes to Cambridge 
because he didn't know Greek. They'd never taught him that at his preparatory school. So he couldn't go to Oxford, which was what the men in his family had done, even though you'd think that, you know, one of the parents would have read the syllabus at some point and just made a, a comparison of what, you know, what the entry requirements were. But I guess they weren't so concerned about that back then. But instead he goes, he studies geology. He does an ordinary BA. So no, no, no honors, um, you know, and, and there's an interesting point again in, in the biography that is, is most accessible, which is by Terry Wellborn, which again, interesting to read, but know that it's very bought in <laughs> to the, the, the whole thing, um, that it says the objective of gaining a degree during his time there did not dawn on him until fairly late in the day. So he's just sort of <laughs> hanging out. Just and <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and there's a lot about even then him sort of setting himself up kind of against the, at least the establishment of, of Cambridge as a university. He feels, you know, these, these sort of town people don't have this kind of intrinsic knowledge that the country people would have had. And this, this is something we see again and again, that there's kind of um, real men, if you like, and he mm. keeps you know, harping back on this, who have certain skills. Uh, and especially we'll see this a little bit later as he gets into sailing and this kind of maritime obsession that uh, he sees himself as sort of the last generation that had, you know, real understanding of things. And, you know, it, it, it's again, it's it's a very specific um, way to place yourself in the world, if you like. But uh, toward the end of his degree, uh, he goes off to uh, Jan Mayen Island in Norway. And this is a whole group of people who are sort of brought together purely because they are sort of wealthy young men of a, of a certain class. No one has particular skills to be doing this sort of semi-Arctic expedition and they're going to go climbing all of these things, nobody dies, which is amazing. And uh, they're all sort of, you know, pat each other on the back. But this, this sort of spurs in him this idea of, like you were saying, this sort of imperial idea of like adventure and he's going to go off and discover things. And, and, and he says this a lot, kind of, he, he did have a, a, an unpublished um, memoir where he talked a lot about how, you know, he was going to sort of do this adventuring and, and you know he could still find these places that weren't on the map etc cetera, etc cetera. but he does get to sort of get into archaeology a little bit at this point where he gets to kind of you know help if you like in air quotes dig a couple of what they're calling Eskimo settlements and I'm like there's probably more to it than that we could be a little more precise but um it, it's a funny thing too because again the kind of coverage these things get like the times calls this expedition that they went on as the mountaineering event of the year and you're like wait what <laughs> is yeah. this a thing? Uh, but but again, it's 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 you know sort of young men of a certain class who don't really have to have jobs or pay mm -hmm. rent or or do anything, so they go off adventuring. But he's not quite sure what to do after he gets this uh, again ordinary, if you like, degree in geology. He's not interested in geology, but there's also this bit uh, again, kind of in in the biography that says he had decided not to go into business for he believed the government would only take away any money he earned, and it's. It's, it's again, it's like, okay. So, um, and, and again, just because, you know, you know, someone who knows someone he's, uh, he's offered, you know, on the basis of nothing, really the honorary role of keeper of Anglo-Saxon antiquities at Cambridge. So this is something that, you know, nowadays would be a real job that you have to publish and publish and, you know, kill yourself to get. He just sort of waltzes into it because he's there and he's kind of at a loose end. And he has this well, we'll, we'll say role instead of job from 1923 until 1957. And 
I think this is the kind of thing that gives him a lot of cachet once things move into the kind of paranormal side of things, because it's easy to say, oh, he, he had this very respectable job at Cambridge. He's a keeper. You know, that's, that's a real thing. And, and yeah. yes, it would be now, but it's, it's fascinating to me that at the time it's, it's purely kind of um, a hobby that you, you get sorry, a title it for. It was not paid. He, um, no. I, I was trying to understand like what you're saying, yeah. how respected was this guy in um, archaeology before he starts, you know, coming up with the strange ideas and again, same thing as yeah. keeper of, anti- of antiquities. That sounds like serious, he, he, you know. And then, well, actually, it's more of a social. Like he, he achieved it through yeah. social connections, and it's 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 voluntary. It's unpaid. It's only someone who is idle, rich, and well connected yes. is going to be able absolutely, to- absolutely. He was even coupled with his own private income. He was able to pursue his vocation without the pressures normally associated with employment. It's like, well, that that must be nice. That's delightful so I, mean, I presume, I presume yeah. he was still like you know in the in the world of he still knew a few things about yeah and, and it's a funny thing because he he clearly uh does do some good stuff when it comes to writing about archaeology at least in this kind of earlier period he's he's not great when he's uh, when we talk about sort of field work and, and i'll talk about that in a minute he does publish some books that are, are, you know, certainly more kind of a general introduction to things. He has one book in particular about the Picts that's, uh, it has some things in it now that we would be like, oh no, but in terms of the time it was written and introducing the topic to a general audience, it's actually very uh, easy to read, very engaging. Uh, it does, you know, have bring you know other people's work into it. And again, he had a series of books like that that are very accessible, again, have things in them that, let, let's say wouldn't be more wrong than anyone else's of the period necessarily with, with a couple of exceptions. But it's interesting though, that again, as a field archeologist, he's not well respected, but it's, um, you know, he's, he sort of comes in, sort of digs through mounds, finds the bit he's interested in, and then just leaves, you know, everyone else to kind of clean up after him. And it's not necessarily unusual for the time, because again, a lot of these people would have had kind of, you know, foremen to come in and do the actual digging work for them and they just kind of turn up and be like that 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 and it's it's certainly not how it would uh, how it would be done now but it, there's uh there's this bit again in in uh, Welburn's book that says um uh let's see and I, I had to quote it because it's it's kind of amazing <laughs> uh which is uh, his shoddy workmanship would have been considered by many of his fellows as a sign of arrogance as if he considered it below himself to finish off an excavation once he had achieved his own objectives tom however was not consciously being arrogant. His motivation was simply to find things out. His failure to follow protocol was more likely due to the impatience of an inquisitive mind. He <laughs> considered the more mundane tasks of his undertaking were best suited to those with less imaginative minds. So just <laughs> above it all. Oh, man. Yeah. That's, it's pure like the uh, influence of how archaeology was thought of in popular culture you know it's an adventure it's 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 about lost cities and treasure and gold and get the exciting you know eye-catching thing find troy find you know the find the lost mines of kings you know king solomon and then yeah leave the boring stuff to somebody else exactly exactly and he does talk in some of his letters to people about oh we did find what we were looking for but we had to dig through these layers of sort of medieval garbage you know effectively (laughs) and he's like okay but to another scholar that might have been really important and you've destroyed it now but but again not necessarily uncommon for the time i think there is this kind of push and pull at, at this time in, in archaeology between sort of things becoming more and more professionalized where a lot of the you know the professional archaeologists are doing this work and not just leaving it to other people but 
uh, you know, and again, if you're thinking of sort of the, the 30s and 40s, you're also thinking of, you know, kind of the, the era of Sutton Hoo. And I think if a lot of people have seen the, the dig recently, you have, you know, people, um, you know, like, like Brown, who were what we call real archaeologists, but a lot of the university archaeologists sort of looked at looked down on them, didn't think of them as, you know, real men doing this. They were kind of, you know, there's, there's this sort of class distinction between the, the sort of working class people who'd gotten themselves up there and understood how to do this versus the sort of poshos who'd swan in and uh, see what they wanted to see and then, you know, go off. Now that's that's certainly a generalization and a bit of an exaggeration, but you, you absolutely see this. And in fact, one of the things he rails against later uh, before he leaves Cambridge is this, uh, what he sees as the, I think he called it sort of creeping trade unionism in archeology. span He thinks people aren't being <laughs> creative enough and, you know, you have to free your mind, which you can only do presumably if you're not paying for things. And, I can't believe you he know. used that term. And it, it, it reminds me of recent yeah. conversations we've had about, again, you know, similar British people interested in unique interpretations of the past from this time, all who are from this kind of very of the establishment conservative background yeah. where, where, where that kind of establishment cred, cred allows them to be more out there with their thinking. Maybe. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's the thing. You And, and he sort of does embrace that. Um, I would say knowingly to a certain extent, but but then there's obviously a bit that he just doesn't see is, <laughs> is there. But he does have some other, what, what I'll say, good work that uh, maybe he gets kind of short shrift for, which is he's very involved in the discovery and the, uh, well, I'd say less the discovery, but certainly the inquest around the uh, Mildenhall treasure, um, which is uh, even now has a lot of controversy around in terms of is the whole thing now in the British Museum? Did bits of it wander off? And for, for those who don't know, it's uh, it, it's fourth century Roman silver hoard. Uh, it was discovered, um, depending on who you ask, probably in the 1940s. So just uh, you know, sort of Second World War is very much uh, kicking off. Some people believe it was actually discovered or parts of it in the 1920s, but it, it, there's definitely some things about it that don't quite add up and everyone gets involved in this. So Christopher Hawks, who, who people will know as a legitimate archeologist was the assistant keeper, but a real job at, uh, at the British Museum at that point. And, and he is one of the people involved in sort of, not necessarily in the discovery, but in discovering there's a discovery. And then, you know, having this whole thing come together, but everyone's involved. Roald Dahl writes about it. Is it that is Tales of the Unexpected? Because that rings a bell. It, it, he actually wrote about it twice. So he had an article, I, I think it was in the Saturday Evening Post when it's first discovered in the 40s. And then he writes again, I think in Tales of the Unexpected, but I, I could be wrong about that. But in the 70s, he revisits. Editing key in here. I went and checked the library. I'm incorrect here. It is not, in fact, Tales of the Unexpected. The short story about the Mildenhall treasure by Roald Dahl is, of course, in the book, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. And it's the same kind of uh, thing that where. Clearly not everyone is telling the truth, but it's not 100% certain who or what the aim is. Uh, but, but long story short is that um, Lethbridge is there to, to um, sort of be one. And he's sort of, you know, saying, well, there are some things about this that don't quite add up. And he, you know, correctly is like, you know, figures out where they say they found it is not where it possibly could have been found. He gets to go back and sort of redig that that site later where they pointed to, and they find it effectively salted with Georgian silver. So there's all these 18th century things and pewter cups, and he's like, okay, come on, but really nothing ever comes of it. It's it's interesting that everyone, you sort of everyone involved knows 
someone is lying, something else is out there. Roald Dahl writes these, you know, again, these couple of articles uh, using, you know, broadly the same material, but everyone gets mad at him because he treats the original finders as kind of country bumpkins. And there's a lot of kind of uh, caricatures um, and, and it kind of grows from there even later. But again, what, what's interesting is, you know, is Lethbridge is right about a lot of these things, but you can also start to see in this period where some of the things start to go off the rails a little bit because he he and um, uh, I, I forget which which of his acquaintances it was at this point. They they get very very uh, kind of invested in this conspiracy theory effectively about where the treasure came from, and there were a couple of different conspiracy theories about it both at the time and and even now. So there's one saying oh. You wouldn't have silver this good in, in a, a Romano-British context. It must have come from the Mediterranean and Nazis brought it through. And then you're like, wait, what? And it's <laughs> it's insane. Now, to his credit, he doesn't get involved in this, but he does go down this rabbit hole again that it had been um, sort of deposited, if you like, by a guy who's kind of a semi-highwayman, maybe in the 1860s, although someone who had been at this you know, much, much, much longer from kind of the early 1810s. And, you know, again, it's, it's like, well, why, why would this guy have had this stuff? Why would he have reburied it? it? You know, the, the sort of, you know, if you're doing like the five whys on it, none of it makes any sense, but this is kind of what he gets really invested in. And at the end, you know, it comes to nothing because it goes to the British Museum. It's declared treasure trove, you know, a lot of that based on his testimony, but there are probably still bits and pieces of this hoard that are scattered you know, either throughout other collections, uh, private collections, family, we don't really know, but it's interesting that he is still kind of within the realm of what we'll call normal technology at this point, where he's brought in as an expert based on his background. He makes some very good deductions around, you know, the, the evidence as presented, but then it does kind of go off, you know, into left field. It's just, there's no impact at this point of going into left field. And, you know, that, that really happens, you know, about a decade later when we get to the, the early fifties, where we get to the stuff about the Gog Magog Hills and then we're, we are off, we are off the rails, frankly, when we get to that. So I don't know how much people know about it though. It's a strange story. Did he, before we do that, he, he wrote, he wrote about the picks. Was he interested in the, um, we've, we've talked before about these very bizarre ideas about the picks that they were like races of prehistoric subhuman types. Was he, it, which was funny. all ideas were still going around like in some circles. Yeah, and, and you know, he doesn't have it as specifically when he writes about them in kind of the 30s and 40s, but he comes back to that kind of thing toward the end of his life where you get sort of the full on, you know, Von Daniken effect. Um, but but he does have, oh yeah, he does have little bits and pieces though where he sees, uh, and, and I think the Picts are one of these sort of certain races as being a little more sort of noble than others, if you like. And it's, you know, there, there are things about that where he's, you know, it's, it's not quite noble savage, but he, and, and he is slightly ahead of his time in thinking, oh, you know, they were doing their own thing. It was pretty great. It wasn't just the Romans coming in and being all civilized and everyone else kind of, uh, you know, rubbing sticks together, which is a lot of what the, the popular view was. So he, he does move it on a little bit, but he does have these little flashes here and there, which, which now we would kind of look at and, and feel a little uncomfortable about, because especially when he's writing about sailing and uh, kind of the history of boats, which he just does as a self-published thing throughout his life, really, you know, he'll look at, again, what he'll call sort of Eskimo boats, and he'll be like, oh, well, clearly, you know, rather than saying, you know, it made sense that people would sort of put skins over a frame to build a boat because that makes sense, he'll be like, well, 
they must have been, you know, <laughs> they must have been introduced to this by whether it's Irish monks or, you know, it, it, it's, you know, pick, you know, choose your fighter, uh, you know, yeah. Irish monks, Scottish uh, knights, you know, you, you name it. He does always say, ah, well, isn't it great that, you know, someone went out and kind of brought them this technology and like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, common, common ideas at the time. They were common ideas at the time. And, and it's funny that, well, maybe funny is the wrong word, but they're, they're there. But he doesn't kind of lean into them all the way until much later in life when then he starts to think, you know, about things. That, and again, this is much, much later about like, maybe, maybe ancient aliens seeded some races and not others. And then you're like, oh, no, no, no. It's Always just gone full. Yeah. Yeah. Gone full bore down, down that. But again, that's, that's later, but he is always very interested in sailing and boats and he he's disappearing regularly for months at a time. Uh, and, and there's a lot happening, you know, family wise where his wife has all these nervous breakdowns, his children clearly have mental health problems and he just sort of goes off on a boat. And you're like, maybe these are related in some way, but you know, it's hard to look back. Well, let's get to the, um, the chalk formations the chalk car the supposed chalk carving the supposed yeah and, and this is again this is kind of where i first uh, was in in the whole bit about that you know he, he's sort of discovering if you like the, these chalk figures outside of of cambridge and i think to you know to put them in context it it starts off as not a completely crazy idea because even now, you know, if we look at, at chalk figures in Britain, we, we've only known, if you like, in, in air quotes, that um, like the Uffington White Horse is legitimately prehistoric for probably about uh, 12 or 15 years, I think, something like that, that we've really had good dating evidence for that. And the Cernabus giant, too, we've only gotten in the past couple of months real dating evidence for yes. uh, for him. So, oh, yes. it's, yeah, so it, it's completely fair that people would have thought, there's all these all over the place and they could be any age. And um, but then again, where it's sort of, and, and that part is fine, but then where it gets weird is he's started to use uh, a lot more kind of dowsing as a, as a technique. So he's not just going off though with some sticks, he's got this giant you know, metal bar that he rams into the ground. Uh, and he has a theory that he can kind of tell just, you know, by kind of magic, uh, whether or not uh, the ground below it had been disturbed. So he starts off, you know, in a way that, that you know, makes perfect sense. He's, he looks at sort of local traditions that says, oh, there was a giant on the hillside. It was still visible in the either late 18th, early 19th century. Okay, so far, so good. But then, you know, again, his method is, you know, nowadays we could send someone up with, you know, various uh, sort of, uh, you know, resistivity or other, other ways of sort of looking at, you know, ground penetrating radar, et cetera. No way to do that in the 1950s, of course, uh, although you did have people using aerial photographs, things like that. Nothing turns up, uh, it, it, you know, if you're looking at this particular hillside, there is an Iron Age, we'll say, enclosure. We don't quite know what it is, but uh, actually we might, we might do now, but we didn't when I was in grad school. So I'm going to have to say, I don't know, but uh, there, you know, there is an encampment, but he's looking for this giant uh, or he's decided he's looking for this giant. So he's going off, you know, he's sticking this metal bar in the ground. And, and again, this, this is a thing that you could only do as a kind of member of the establishment because he gets kind of permission by just sort of turning up and saying, Hey, I'd like to do this. And they're like, great, have at it. And mm -hmm. there's no real, you know, sort of, um, you know, it's not like a planning permission thing he has to go through. They just kind of let him. And, and again, he's got this idea that it's, it's better than doing kind of uh, digging a whole trench. He has this idea that, yeah, that's for, that's for dummies. They're just going to dig a hole and, you know, see what's there, but he's, he's smarter. He's doing this 
thing with the, you know, pushing this iron rod into the ground or uh, stainless steel, sorry. So what he does, he's going around the hillside, you know, plopping this, this rod into the ground. He's getting terrible blisters. He's doing this in all weather. And if he finds something, um, again, many, many air quotes, he, uh, he has his wife or his second wife at this point sort of trucking along behind him, putting asparagus rods in the ground where he thinks there's something. And then he takes them back and he plots what he thinks he's found. And at first he's like, oh, I found it. I've got the face of the giant. And again, what he, you know, if you look at the pictures of it, they are pretty interesting, but then he keeps going. I've got another giant. I've got a giant with breasts. I've got maybe a lion. Like it, it just goes, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it, it's, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, if you look at what he thinks he's found, you know, it, it, you know the, the sort of face is not unlike in some ways the, the face of the Cernabus giant, but he's decided he has a whole pantheon of gods, if you like, on this hillside above Cambridge. And it's, uh, people are not thrilled about this. So, you know, other, you know, they, they get sort of what I'll call actual archaeologists to come in and be like, no, you're, you're just seeing what you want to see. This is not a real thing. This is just chalk that's been disturbed with you know, erosion and, and things like that over time. But again, highly recommend looking at the pictures because they are fascinating and it is, you know, something that, um, you know, looks like it would fit in with this kind of idea of sort of prehistoric gods all over the place, but they, they have since been reburied. There is no evidence that there's any, <laughs> there was any kind of actual chalk drawing, uh, if you like, in the hillside. But he gets so angry about this that he writes this book called Gog Magog, The Buried Hills, uh, available from any good library. And it is just a rant about everyone else is wrong. He pulls Margaret Murray into this, um, you know, and she's defending him, although privately, apparently she was like, eh, maybe not. So she was a little bit skeptical, too. But he goes off on, you know, does a whole sort of PR offensive. And at this point, um, you know, his book is out there. This is all sort of tied in with this other work he's doing around uh, the pendulum, which uh, we'll get yes. into in a minute, because this is, again, where it kind of goes in a direction. But this is really where he has a complete break with what we'll call kind of the, the, the regular archaeological uh, establishment who all just say there's nothing there or one, one or two people at least sort of try to be kind. And they're like, well, maybe there's something, but it's not this. And, and more recently, and said, well, it's not even the right hillside if you're looking at what we have, you know, from kind of the oral tradition. It's, it's the wrong direction. It doesn't make any sense. And, and as we know now, too, these figures would, that he thinks are, are probably sort of Bronze or Iron Age, would they, they just don't look right for the period. None of it makes any sense. But he's so you know, offended by his treatment that he just sort of leaves. Uh, he goes off to go farm for about a year and then discovers farming is hard <laughs> and you know, comes back to, to just moves to his house in Devon. And that's where he goes full on into kind of uh, the paranormal, although he always maintains it's not paranormal, that it's science and we just don't know yet the way it all works. So it's always couched in this very, um, I don't wanna say very scientific, but science-y kind, of, uh, kind of phrasing. But again, he continues to do the dowsing and he continues to get all of this sort of very complicated sort of math, if you like, about how this pendulum, uh, how uh, his pendulums all have rates depending on all kinds of different things yes. on sort of, uh, you, you know, age, you know, gender, it is, 
bonkers stuff, but they have a lot of really complicated formulas to show you that it's a real thing. Stuff from Colin Wilson's books, and this blew my mind as a kid because he starts off saying, you know, the pendulum will vibrate at a certain frequency for iron or for quartz or for these kind of physical things. And, you know, you're like, well, you know, that sounds like something that could be a real thing. And then then he goes on and says, also, there are are vibrations for these abstract concepts like male or female or anger or emotions. Yeah. Yeah. And you might have held something for long enough and yes. imbued it with whatever it was. And you and that could be the emotion. It could be your gender, it could, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's but it is exactly like Colin Wilson picks this up. And so do a lot of other people in again, kind of we get into kind of the earth mysteries type of uh, type of thing. They go the, the, the lay hunter type people are full on for it. They use all of these formulas as a kind of um, standard, if you like. And people are are going off with their own pendulums and being like, oh, well, it's, you know, this length, so it would be this. And it's it's very confusing, but it's very, very sciencey. But while he's doing all of this stuff too, he's also doing all of these kind of experiments, if, if you like, around um, what, what he kind of call, calls ghost and ghouls. So he, he separates these as, as a concept and ghost and ghouls is a, is a very interesting book. And, and again, this is something I had read first not through Colin Wilson, but through Peter Underwood. So again, this kind of group of people all yes. are, you know, the Venn diagram is not quite a circle, but it's it's very, very, very close. And I had first read, um, and this was after reading the Janet and Colin board, but I, you know, I saw them, you know, referencing T.C. Lethbridge when talking about, oh, he, he had a neighbor who was slightly witchy and who would try to project herself into his house, as you do, I, I guess. And he would apparently draw pentagrams in his head when he kind of felt her trying to come in again in, in some sort of psychic way and she wouldn't be able to get in. And then they would all have a good laugh about it, you know, later over tea. And, and then the neighbor is sort of dies in mysterious circumstances. It's very strange, but he continues kind of going into these ideas and he's using his home. It, it's in Devon at this point as, you know, really kind of his sort of experiment um, as a sort of grounds for these experiments, because it is this sort of medieval house. It's got all of these layers and, he keeps thinking again that you can kind of unpack some of this stuff and it gets into you know what what people will later think of as kind of stone tape uh, ideas but he he never calls it that directly he just thinks kind of things can be charged by whatever whether it's the emotion or again someone touches something or it, but it's all that uh you know it's it's either there's water there or there's stone there or whatever it is to kind of record these these impressions so he doesn't see that the ghosts necessarily as kind of a manifestation as much as kind of um, like a recording or, or something like that. Although again, it's not quite as fully realized as it would be, you know, thanks to Nigel Neal and people adding some some color to it with uh, with a little dramatization, but it's it's much more, again, sciencey that these things are all possible and that you can kind of tune into them. But then he starts to get into, you know, some people are better at this than others. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's very, uh, it's it's again he clearly sees that he is among the some people but it's not clear what else kind of does this but it's all about you know the idea that these things are all projections that you know happen through again sort of slightly mysterious means but it's it's again all that you can find you know with the pendulum or just you know someone who can who can tell these things but it it's uh it's a funny thing and it's it's really you know, I think if you look at it in context, it looks very much all just a reaction to, you know, toward, toward the end of his, what we'll call his working life, although it wasn't quite that, you know, being kind of rejected by um, the, the sort of new status quo. But 
it's it's interesting that you know he goes down these these, these sort of roads and he's even like the BBC does a, a couple of different interviews and, and shoots at his house, but a lot of them either never aired or you know as as per usual with so many things from the BBC in the 1970s mm. they're, they're gone. So we don't know how these things actually turned out, but he got a paycheck for them. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, I've been looking because I like the names of the documentaries and the years that they came out are known, but I I couldn't find them anywhere and maybe. They didn't keep backups of things in those days. Obviously, the famous last Doctor Who episodes. Exactly. Yeah, unless someone the finds them in Namibia with yeah, everything else, which is where they tend to be on, on video. But uh, wow. presuming those didn't air uh, much outside mm. of Britain. But yeah. Did he have but, opinions about... Um, I, I was reading that like one of the predecessors of this idea of sort of pseudo-stone tape was Oliver Lodge, yeah. who, of course, was a Victorian scientist who was also yeah. into spiritualism. And um, interest like th these two parallel takes on supernatural, um, like ghosts particularly, like either they yeah. are the souls of dead people, you know, there there is conscious in some way, like they are the right. representation of, of a person versus no, they are this, um, just this leftover energy that's in the landscape somehow. And uh, interesting that Lodge, who I believe was a spiritualist of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Was also interested in the, the latter idea. And whether I'm wondering yeah. whether Lethbridge did he have any spiritualist or or theosophical kind of? It never seems to come up. You don't see him sort of uh, treading in those circles. But it is a funny thing because he does, like you say, it's kind of go through some of those ideas. And he also has an idea that maybe you're seeing future memories, so things that haven't quite happened yet, but are somehow again, you know, uh, that some people can see them, and it's not entirely clear how some tap, tap into this and some don't, but. I think to, to go back to Oliver Lodge, you know, in some of the er, those earlier things that um, the, the sort of Society for Psychical Research and so on, a lot of times people would see what we'll call the ghosts or whatever of people who were very much alive. There would just be some kind of, you know, they would have a vision of them or whatever. And then that kind of disappears in the, you know, the popular literature, if you like. But this is something that Lethbridge seems to be having a lot of. He sees his neighbor you know, kind of pop up. And, and so it, it's clearly an idea that very much resonates with him still. And so whether it's kind of generational, if you like, or, or what, but he, he's very much, you know, of the idea that, again, kind of living people can put themselves someplace, down, whether it's, you know, he doesn't call it like an astral projection. I think that kind of thing is going to come around maybe like five years after his death. But uh, it's in that, that kind of idea that, you know, maybe what you see as a ghost is is again a recording if you like but that there's other things that some people can do to mm. you know that the, the spirit is out there doing something or other the, but again the it's the living called yeah. the crisis apparitions yeah yeah although they're not all crisis apparitions but in some of the earlier ones that's all it's can be literally like i saw so and so walking down the street and then they disappeared but then they were off getting ice cream or, or whatever and it's some of them are very benign and then they don't have that kind of like doppelganger mm. you know kind of darkness with them but then a lot of them do but i feel like we, we don't talk about those now it's uh yeah, it's, it's, it's time like you it? don't talk about orbs before but now we yeah. do because yeah. they're in your phone but yeah <laughs> Alan wilson actually told the story of it happening to him where he, he talks about ah. you know i saw my secretary on the street pa passed her by in the street said hello but then when i got into the office you know she couldn't possibly have been there because she was somewhere else and clearly he was reading a lot of Lethbridge right. at the time or you know was was influenced by him as we probably mentioned yeah, yeah. I, I even had cousins who would say this happened to them all the time in their house. Um, but, but, you know, certainly you think about what would have been at that time, you know, sort of four teenagers close in age and just uh, drama and, and so on. But they would all insist that you would see one of them walk into a room, no one would come out, and that person wouldn't have been home, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, uh, 
you know, it, it's very much kind of that that idea. But yeah, it, it, it's a funny thing because, you know, Colin Wilson only kind of discovers Lethbridge just after his death. He sends a book to, you know, it turns out to be Lethbridge's widow to kind of be like, oh, I think you'll really be into this. I've just found you a big fan, you know, um, and he, they kind of just miss each other. And it's it's a weird thing. And, and then I think some people, again, this pops up in the, in the Welburn uh, biography, like kind of make a big thing about this, that, that oh, connected his ideas would be much more sort of accepted by hmm. I, I think they want to say science but you're like no that's that's not what, what. can you say a little bit about who <laughs> Colin Wilson was because he was um he kind of has a unique place in in British literary history he's, he's a funny one and I, I I don't know him as well as I would know like a Peter Underwood kind of thing but but Wilson is interesting in that you know he's sort of first an angry young man so he you know he writes you know fiction at, at first but then it it sort of becomes you know, he gets much more into this sort of, you know, philosophy kind of side of things and gets away from, he doesn't want to be associated with kind of the angry young man um, kind of thing, if you like, but also kind of dabbles in some right-wing type stuff. And, and and I don't know if toward the end of his life, if it ended up in, in that direction again, because I, I do think there are a couple of things in my kind of very late Lethbridge that do kind of go in that direction, which, and again, I think we, we're just so it's so vivid now seeing that kind of thing just because you're like oh I see where this leads let's no no <laughs> but uh, yeah but I, I know a little bit less about Wilson's kind of kind of later life apart from his his huge interest in people like Lethbridge and um j- just that whole uh you know again milieu if you like hmm. I, I wonder if would Lethbridge be almost forgotten today were it not for Wilson? I think so I think so I mean I think it's a it's a fair it's a fair question because you know even a lot of the kind of other other people have kind of, you know, you're, you're, who get sort of picked up with your, your earth mysteries types, like they're, like people know the names, like people will know like an Alfred Watkins or, or that kind of thing, but it's not kind of a, a cottage industry uh, as he's much. Not, he's I, not I, Harry Price, he's not. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah, you're not certainly not the same kind of level. And again, I wonder if in that case, that's there's kind of that class distinction because, you know, Alfred Watkins kind of, you know, working or at least kind of lower middle class, you know, comes to these things on his own, whereas these other people have kind of the backing of, uh, you know, fancy letters after their names, even if they don't necessarily do much with them. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit more about the, I remember um, Colin Wilson called him the man who studied ghouls. So what was his <laughs> idea of a ghoul? What did that mean to him? Yeah. So he has this whole idea that he, again, it's kind of around this idea of the atmosphere or uh, you know, more of a, a feeling really that, you know, ghoul can almost be like walking into almost like a black depression, if you like. And I think it's the kind of thing that you know, you'll hear when, when people are talking, you know, when people talk about sort of what happens right before they go into a time slip or that kind of thing where everything is very sort of dark. The atmosphere is, you know, you know, very uh, either sort of, um, again, where there's just not a lot going on or it just feels very, um, oh, what's a good word? feels very constrained, very, very sort of negative. But then sometimes you can walk to their side and everything is fine. And again, he, he, he has this first kind of ghoul, if you like, experience uh, as a teenager, just sort of uh, when he's um, I think going for a walk with his mother. But he keeps coming back to this in later in life where he'll just kind of walk into an atmosphere that feels wrong. And, and again, you know, he still ties this to kind of the, uh, again, kind of the recording idea that there's something that's, you know, imbued this particular atmosphere with the ghoul and, and the ghoul is again this kind of almost invariably negative kind of um feeling atmosphere and there may be a way to kind of unlock some of it but we don't really we don't know enough because we haven't done enough of the science but it's he really has that distinction between kind of the ghost and ghoul if you like where one is kind of 
much more associated with like a, a vision of a person or you know, a dog or, or even or, or whatever. But the ghoul is this kind of amorphous, you know, blackness almost. Um, and, and, you know, and, and again, but he sees them both as very sort of sciencey, if you like. Mm. So I guess I feel like to me, like his lasting legacy would be this idea of the recordings, the, you know, the emotional yeah. recording of the landscape feeding into what we now call Stone Tape with, with the work of, of Nigel Neal. Um, what, what do you think are his lasting repercussions? Are, is this idea still important in sort of paranormal circles today? I, I think it is. And, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, in some ways too, like the way archaeology has gone, where now we do do scientific remote sensing and, and things like that, like it would have been interesting had he lived to see that kind of technology, would he have kind of gone in this very, you know, sort of spiritual, if you like, direction, had he been able to access kind of tools that would, you know, show you a little bit more about what was going on. And I, I don't know, but I, I feel like yeah, his, his legacy is certainly not in archaeology per se, but absolutely in this idea of, uh, you know, kind of drawing together these different things around like, you know, again, kind of earth mysteries and dowsing and, you know, that and again, what, what will eventually be stone tape when we get there. But it, he, he kind of, again, gives it this bit of cachet around, oh, well, you know, if someone this clever, you know, saw all these things and there's a lot about, oh, he was so far, you know, he was sort of so, you know, looking so far ahead, the rest of us just weren't kind of smart enough to, to see all of that. And I, I do wonder though, I, I feel like there's less of that feeling now, just as kind of more and more things get debunked if you like but I, I think he still very much got this place where people will sort of you know look back and say oh no no but look we haven't been able to disprove this or disprove that which is again not how science works but how people who write in this kind of field often like to think science works so it's uh, you know it, it's an interesting thing where again and if you don't know you know you, you don't know so it's it's hard to to kind of you know have a, have a coherent argument where you have to sort of back up and explain well, okay but that's not the point it's not about trying to disprove something it's about having evidence for something and it, you know, if you're not even talking about the same thing it's it's hard to it's hard to do but yeah I, I do think it's very much around um, again kind of this this idea of ghost and ghoul and, and stone tape type things again although I think you know people will like to be like no it wasn't him he had nothing to do with it it's like okay but it's the same ideas that get kind of built on and it's okay because like you say Lodge also had similar ideas so it's not that any of them had to be original necessarily but they kind of advanced it and, and I think it's, it's probably good that those are the things he's more remembered for because his, his again his last book which was published posthumously was really getting into your kind of ancient aliens weird things about dreams kind of stuff that you know in retrospect you know or probably not the the sort of uh, workings of a, of a well mind, if you like, but it's it's definitely stuff that um, when sort of seized upon by people who get very into those things, uh, who like to sort of be like, oh, but look, some people are are more advanced than others because of X or Y, and like, no, 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 that's not a thing. And we don't do that as, you know, archaeologists or, or anything else. But I think, you know, if you kind of stick with the stuff he was doing, this again, sort of countercultural, you know, iconoclastic stuff in, in the 50s and 60s. It's really interesting to look at that and look at why people felt, thought it was interesting and continue to build on it. And certainly, you know, there are many issues of the lay hunter going back to, ah, well, as Lethbridge said, and it's just right. fascinating to see this all, you know, it builds and builds and builds. It eventually gets to crop circles, all kinds of things of that are fascinating and wonderful, uh, even though it's, you know, two guys in a field with a board, but, you know, it's still really interesting. And I think, you know, there's always that responsibility to where you have to be like okay but you know let's let's look at this and why it's interesting but not kind of go off into you know the, the realms of 
uh, you know, sort of unnatural things, if you like. But it's, again, something I've always been fascinated by. And it's only as you kind of unpack it further and further, you start to realize kind of why some people got a platform and others didn't. Um, you know, it was often just kind of uh, who they were and who they were related to or who they knew, things like that. And so you do wonder, like, what got missed? Like, what what kind of didn't get picked up on? Like, what could be, you know, a fantastic and fun and, you know, harm, harmless, if you like, kind of uh, conspiracy that we're just missing out on? And uh, I, I missed them when they were, you know, fun and harmless. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. thinking about Harry Price's background, if I recall correctly, it, is, it was contested, but I, yeah. I mean, probably lied about it quite a bit. But I, I think he was a guy of not a tremendous amount of means or like from a family of not not a tremendous amount of means but I, I think he kind of tried to cover that up a little bit later in life yeah 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 oh absolutely yeah and he, he's he's a fascinating one too but yeah it's it's uh it's so interesting again they all had to kind of have this this kind of origin myth uh that, that they all kind of kind of put together about themselves and uh you know I, I think Lethbridge wanted to just be seen as an adventurer and mm. uh someone who was just outside the bounds of ordinary civilization, even though ordinary civilization was kind of what put him exactly where he was. So, you know, he didn't want to rock the boat too much. Is there any element of his work that we haven't covered that um, you think is worth mentioning? It, it's a good question. I think the, the one thing that we don't really talk about too much is um, he, he actually was a very good uh, archaeological drafts person. When we look at his art, it's really well executed. I, I think uh, he did leave quite a bit of, uh, or quite a number of drawings, watercolors, that kind of thing. Uh, when he died, and you know, they're not going to be kind of great works of art that you know will, will be in galleries and things like that. But it's it's very good, especially for its time when it comes to that kind of um, you know being able to give a sense of the people in a landscape and what that might have been like. And and I think that's that's kind of a skill we don't maybe recognize as much now because we we tend to uh, I think see things on kind of a, a much more macro level often, where we try to see the wider society where he's kind of often, not always, but often being like, oh, the pretty thing we found and the great man at the center of whatever. Uh, but it does bring some of these things to life, even if it's not necessarily as it was, but you know, we're never gonna be 100% correct about these when it, when it comes to archeology. span So I think those are the, those are the things where, you know, he probably should be remembered a little more. He did do, you know, he, he was a very effective communicator when it came to this kind of thing. It's just a lot of what he was communicating was slightly bonkers so it's uh you have to kind of uh take it with a with a grain of salt but it's it's interesting stuff and he's a fascinating person and, and i do kind of wonder like what happens if we do eventually find a, a chalk figure somewhere above cambridge will he get all the the yeah. credit for it because there could well have been something it just was probably not in that spot and yes. certainly not the the vintage he wanted it to be so tremendous and um Thank you so much for your your knowledge and reading. I did I didn't know most of that about Lethbridge, and uh, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't see him popping up in, you know, I, I, to me he was a more obscure figure, and I was genuinely surprised when you said, "Oh yeah, we you know we were warned about him." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I don't know if that happens as much, you know, outside archaeology, or if it would now, if I'm just a product of my my time and happened to cross paths with you know people of the right generation. But uh, yeah, he's. I've always found him fascinating, um, you know, like, like Margaret Murray, too, who's someone for a whole very long discussion. But uh, it's interesting that they sort of had these parallel paths, but uh, again, they kind of branched in different directions later. Tremendous. And um, Lisa, before we wrap up, um, where can people find your, your work online? So I, I'm, I'm in a couple of places. I'm uh, at myself. I'm at Lisa Grimm on Twitter, and I'm very prolific on Twitter, but would love to have people come check us out on Beer Ladies Podcasts. We are at Beer Ladies Pod on all the socials. Uh, 
We do uh, like to talk about all kinds of things, you know, beer, beer history, beer sociology, all of that good stuff while, while having a couple of uh, good Irish craft beers. So we like to spread the word. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I'll just, I'll just um, put in a quick pop for your recent uh, Haunted Pubs episodes, which are tremendous. Oh, thank you. Yes. So I think listeners of this show will, will enjoy that one as well. And again, a tremendous yeah. amount of um, history and scholarship has gone into those. <laughs> we try. Yeah, tremendous. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. And that is it for this episode, folks. Uh, once again, you can find us online over at Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. And over on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And don't forget, you can support us with a nice one-off donation over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wide Atlantic. And as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.